following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, kia ora, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm Reuben, one of the pastors here. Good to be together and good to be with you. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, at the moment, if you're just joining us, you can listen to these messages up to this point online if you, if you would like to, but we're in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, to uh, pull that out or crank it up on your device. And we're going to be in the second half of Ephesians 2 this morning. Laura Patterson is going to come and read this passage for us. Thank you very much, Laura. I'm reading from Ephesians 2, um, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are the Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thanks, Laura. It's good that we've got a nurse this morning reading the passage about circumcision. That's a, that's a pretty safe option. Kids, you can ask your parents about that when you get home. So anyway, uh, I remember when I was 13 years old, our family went on a trip to California, a holiday to California. And uh, we, went, we had a week in L.A., and uh, spent time touring around the city and seeing the various attractions there. And this was 1992, and it just happened that our visit to LA coincided with the Rodney King riots that were happening. So that was when uh, four white police officers were acquitted on charges of using excessive force against a black man, Rodney King. And as soon as that verdict came in, uh, immediately there were these riots all over, well, in a, in a large part of LA, especially the downtown area. People were lighting fires that just went on for days and days. There was a lot of robbery and looting and, and rioting and violence 
widespread across the city, and it, it got pretty severe. The police force in LA were overwhelmed by it. They eventually called in the National Guard. There was a curfew imposed on the city. I remember in our motel room in LA, my dad spread a map of LA across the floor, and we were trying to figure out where we were in relation to where the, where the things were happening, where the violence was happening, and figuring out where to go next. And so we decided the next day to go to the safest place we could think of, Disneyland. So off we went to Disneyland while the rest of the city was burning down around us and just kind of had this surreal experience of uh, this, the safest, happiest place on earth. And we went on this one, I remember this one particular ride in Disneyland called Small World, and it's like a log flume kind of ride, and, and, you, and it gently takes you around all these displays of the, these, these figurines representing all the countries, all the cultures of the world, and they're all singing happily, merrily, holding hands and singing, it's a small world after all. And I, I think the, I was too young to appreciate the irony of this, but this world that I was seeing was a long way from what was happening outside of Disneyland. All this kind of peace and harmony and uh, universal brotherhood and sisterhood was not the world that was going on in the rest of Los Angeles. And I think that was my first real exposure to some of the deep social divisions that exist in the world and how the world is really not like Disneyland at all. And in the last 25 years, it's fair to say a lot of those divisions have got a lot worse uh, and cropped up in all sorts of ways, and we continue to see them today. I mean, you only need to look at what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, the unrest there between uh, protesters and the Chinese government. Uh, you only need to look at all, all the stuff going on with Brexit, the tumultuous week that it's been in British politics over the last week, all the unrest going along with that. Uh, you only need to look closer to home at what's happening with uh, Ihumatel and the way in which, again, and I think that's a complicated issue, I think it defies simplistic explanations and solutions, but it surfaces again those tensions that still exist between Māori and Pākehā in New Zealand. And we live, I think, in a world that is increasingly fragmented, uh, where it's defined by tribalism and parochialism and territorialism and people drifting apart from each other rather than together. And we experience this, I think, at a personal level. I mean, it may not be open hostility and warfare, but just simply in the way, and, and you find this and I find this, that you, you just tend to drift into these homogenous groups of people in social circles with people who are like you. And I think this is, this is what happens, is we just tend to gravitate towards people who are like us, who share our attitudes about things, who think the same way we do about the world and see everything the way we do, who are like us, generally who have the same skin color as us, who have the same opinions as us, and, and we, we kind of then have this view of the others out there. And, and we may not be hostile towards them, we may not be openly um, derogatory towards them, but we just drift apart, and, and they are over there. And it's us over here. And we kind of just, you know, keep that at arm's length, keep them at arm's length, and we're not quite sure. Sometimes that's suspicion, sometimes that's fear, sometimes that's just we don't know what to do. And so we just drift into our own little silos, our own little ghettos, our own little worlds, and that's often how we operate. We're in this world that fragments us and fractures us along so many different lines. And this is a world, I think, and, and these are cultures in which we need to hear the message to the Ephesians all the more. 
uh, because Paul was writing into a context where there were also deep, deep social divisions. This is not just some kind of detached piece of theology. But Paul's writing into an environment there were deep entrenched hostilities and divisions between groups of people and cultures of people, albeit different to today, but some of them even more divisive and polarizing than today. And Paul writes directly into these sorts of situations and circumstances. And he spent the first half of chapter 2 talking about how the gospel, how Jesus Christ makes us right with God. And we talked about this last week, if you remember. The grace of God that comes to every person and it, make, it gives us righteousness and, and good standing, right standing before God. And we are each saved as individuals before God. But now, in the second half of chapter 2, what Paul does is he says, now that, that's, that's part of the picture, but the gospel does more than this. The gospel has something to say to the relationships we have with one another. The gospel has something to say to the divisions in our world and the hostilities and the fragmentation in our world. And if all we see the gospel as being is this personal privatized gospel that makes me right with Jesus and puts me in this little bubble with God and that's it. It's just my own personal little relationship with God. Paul says, you have missed a lot of what Jesus did on the cross. And you have reduced the gospel to something that is only a shadow of its true self. And so Paul is going to show us in this chapter how the gospel is not just about our personal salvation, but directly addresses our human relationships, whether it's relationships interpersonally, relationships in marriages and families, neighborhoods, communities, right through to relationships even between nations, and how the gospel is far broader far bigger, far more comprehensive than we often imagine. So we're going to walk through this passage and listen in on Paul talking to the Ephesians about this and see if we can make some connections through to some of the, the difficulties, divisions, and social concerns that we face today. So what Paul does in these, in these first three verses of this passage, verse 11, 12, 13, he describes what is really one of the major conflicts going on in his day one of the major social cultural divisions, and it is the division between Jew and Gentile. For the Jewish people, they were, and I say this with all respect, they, they were a fiercely nationalistic people. They, they were fiercely patriotic. They had a very strong sense of their own identity as God's people, and that led them to have a lesser view of other cultures. I'm not saying this applies to national Israel today. I'm saying this is a picture of, of Judaism as it was in Paul's day, that Jewish people had one word that they used for everybody else who wasn't Jewish, Gentile. And that, that word doesn't apply to any one group. That's just like us saying today, foreigner. Or, uh, or even worse, ethnic. You know, I remember when I was in seminary, I got invited to a lunch for ethnic students, as if the students putting on the lunch didn't have an ethnicity. It was a quite strange experience. But we sort of use these words as this us and them, me and the other, foreigner, ethnic. Well, that's a bit like Jews using the word Gentile. It was just, it didn't matter if you were an Egyptian or a Greek or an Italian, you're a Gentile. Just one term they slapped on everyone else. And Jewish people, particularly Jewish boys, were taught from a very early age to have disdain for Gentiles. It's just the way it was. It's just the world that they operated. But Jewish men prayed a prayer at the beginning of every day. And that prayer ended by thanking God that they were not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. Now, you might have a few things to say about that prayer. <laughs> we're just going to focus on the Gentile 
part of that today, all right? But this is the daily prayer that they imbibed, which then formed their view of the world. And so for the Jewish people, they really did look down at at all other nations and all other cultures. This is just how they were formed and this is just how they were shaped. And what that meant at a practical level, they would seek to minimize contact as much as possible. They knew they had to have a certain level of trade with non-Jewish people. That was just a commercial reality, but they would try and minimize it. They certainly wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't eat with non-Jews, if at all possible, not if they were law-abiding Jews. Uh, They would try and minimize social contact. They really wouldn't want the kids playing with the the, the neighbor's kids if they were not Jewish, and they would just try and live in that contained, separated world because they really believed that kind of contact was going to make them impure and unclean. Now, the reasons for all this, you need to understand, the reasons are what Paul says in verse 12. He, He explains the rationale for this view. He says, remember that, At that time, you, and he's saying you Gentiles, so you were separate from Christ. In other words, separate from the Messiah. So for the Jewish mindset, the Messiah, when he comes, he's not coming for Gentiles. He's coming for Jews. He's Israel's Messiah. You Gentiles, you don't have any share in the Messiah. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. That is, not part of the chosen people, not part of God's people, not part of Abraham's family, not part of the special people. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That is, God's made all these covenants, but none of them are with Gentiles. All these covenants with, with, with Moses, with Abraham, with David, none of this applies to Gentiles. Therefore, all the promises that go along with these covenants, they don't apply to Gentiles either. So you don't get any of those promises. You're outside all of that. And then Paul just wraps it up with this blanket statement of the end of verse 12, without hope and without God in the world. That's the typical Jewish view of the Gentile, without hope, without God. In other words, Jewish, it wasn't just that Jewish people didn't like Gentiles. They really believed God didn't like Gentiles. They really believed really the only purpose Gentiles served was to be alienated and cut off and, and really destroyed to demonstrate how great God was, that he would, he would destroy them as a demonstration of his glory. That was the view. That was what was widely held. That was how they read their Old Testament. And this is what Paul's dealing with. So he builds up this picture of the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And then he, he says this in verse 13. But now, and again that word but is the hinge on which this passage turns. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, you Gentiles who were far away and alienated from all of this, from God himself, you have now been brought near. You've been brought in. And this has happened through Jesus Christ. And what follows here, verse 14 through to 18, is one of the most stunning expositions of the cross, I think, that you will find in the New Testament. Paul says, for he himself, verse 14, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. That word, we've talked about this, comes from the earlier Hebrew word shalom. Paul used it back in his greeting, grace and peace to you. And it means wholeness, wholeness, not just a peace in my heart, not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a a sense of relational wholeness, wholeness between people and God and shalom, wholeness between people and one another. This is what Christ has brought. And the shalom comes about says Paul, because he has made the two groups one, continuing in verse 14, he's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall 
of hostility. Now, often when we think of the barrier, we sort of think of this, this, this wall that, that exists, we think of the barrier between us and God. And you might have seen that as a diagram. You're here, and God is here, and there's this barrier of our sin between us and God. Or sometimes it's a chasm, and you can't cross over. Humanity and God, we're separated by our sin. And all of that is true, but that's not what Paul's saying. Not what he's saying here. Here, the barrier is not between us and God. It's between us and one another. It's the barrier between Jew and Gentile. That's the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul says Christ has come to bring that barrier down. He's come to tear down that wall. And how has he done this? Well, he goes on. Verse 15. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So the law was really what separated the Jew from the Gentile because the law was the means by which Israel related to God. The law stipulated their relationship with God. It showed them how to live as God's people. And so the Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't have any way of worshiping God, living under his law, being in relationship with him. They were outside all of that. So the law became, even though it was good, it was given for a good purpose, it became a barrier. It became the dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. And so Paul says, now what Christ has done, he's fulfilled the law. He's summed up the law in himself. He's fulfilled that, and he has now set that aside. So that God says this, now the way to access the presence of God is no longer through the law. Now there is another way that's opened up, and it's through the cross. The law is no longer the means of accessing the presence of God. Now it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing about the cross is it invites everybody to come. It's not exclusive. It's not for only one group or people or tribe or nation. The cross of Christ is available to all people. And it invites every person, regardless of culture, background, story, socioeconomic level, whatever. Invites every person to come and receive freely the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive his love, receive his mercy, and receive his forgiveness. And then here's what happens. As we come to the cross, and you personally come, as it were, to the cross, you come to Jesus. And you receive that grace, that mercy into your life. And you look around and you realize something. There's other people here too. There's other people that have come to the cross. And they've also come one at a time from all sorts of backgrounds and different cultures, to drink of the same grace and the same mercy and give their lives to the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find then at the foot of the cross, it's, it's not just about me and God, but now the cross has forged this common ground. And the cross has not only reconciled me to God, it has reconciled me to one another. It has reconciled me to my fellow human being and all those who belong to Jesus. Because the cross binds me to God and it binds me to one another. So the cross creates a family. It creates a family of believers from all sorts of walks of life and backgrounds and cultures. A family that is now one in Jesus Christ. A reconciled community of shalom. That family is called the church. In fact, Paul gives it another name here. One of my favorite names that he gives the church. He doesn't mention the word church, but he does say this. His purpose, this is halfway through verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Literally one man. But I think the phrase new humanity is just right. One new humanity. Out of the two, 
thus making peace. Isn't that a great name for the church? I love that. I mean, there's different uh, titles for the church in the New Testament, the body of Christ and the household of God. This is one of my favorites, a new humanity. I think if I was going to start a church, I'd give it that name. The New Humanity Church. You come into New Humanity on Sunday, I'll see you at New Humanity. I don't know whether it'd catch on. New Humanity Church. Because it says something, doesn't it, about what the church is supposed to be and who we are as a church, that the church is not just a bunch of people that gather to worship God on Sundays. The church is not even a collection of saved individuals. The church is not a social club. The church is not even just about programs and ministries and life groups and sermons and songs. The church is nothing less than a new humanity. A new human race that has been born in the midst of the existing human race. Just as God created humanity on the sixth day, now he has recreated this new humanity out of the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who is the head of a new human race. And this is not some kind of uh, supremacy of one culture over another. This new humanity is comprised of people from many and varied cultures who don't lose their cultural identity when they become part of this humanity. In fact, it is enhanced because we love and appreciate the diversity within the body of Christ. But we have an identity that transcends all of that, that we are one in Christ Jesus. It's the new Humanity. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of what the church is supposed to be, that we are intended to be a new humanity in the midst of the existing humanity, a new society in the midst of existing society, a new culture in the midst of existing culture, a new community, a counter-community in the midst of existing communities. We are to be a new city, the city of God, a new polis in the midst of the existing city. And we are to model to the world God's intentions for humanity, that we live as people reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. We are supposed to be one big signpost of what humanity was always supposed to look like, one in Christ Jesus. It's a big call, hey? It's a big vision. It's a lofty vision. And it's easy to say, well, Paul, you know, I mean, this is pie in the sky. This is big picture thinking, but what about the reality on the ground? What about the messiness? What about the hard yards? What about the deep divides that exist? How does this connect to this? Well, Paul knew exactly how this connected to real life because he had to work it out. I mean, he didn't have the luxury of just writing letters and then doing nothing about it. He, I mean, at this stage, he's in prison, but he had spent a long time and spent time after this working out exactly what this meant on the ground in the first century between these Jews who despised Gentiles, and these Gentiles who didn't know whether they were really allowed to become Christians, or at least Christians as they were, without becoming Jewish. And Paul had to figure all this out for him. And you, you know what it meant? Like at the most practical level in the first century, if you bring it right down, what this meant was a Jewish person being willing to sit at the dinner table with a Gentile and like it. And not, not begrudgingly, not turning their back, sit at the dinner table with that Gentile and see them as a brother or sister. And you cannot overestimate how difficult that was in the first century. You might think that's nothing today. 
sitting down for a meal with someone from a different culture. This was huge. You cannot overestimate how deeply entrenched these divides were. And when you start to grasp that, you'll read some of the letters of the New Testament differently because these divisions ran so, so deep. Some Jews were able to do this and they were willing to follow Paul's instructions and they were willing to have break bread and have table fellowship with Gentiles. Others weren't. It was too hard. It was too demanding. The bar was too high. Couldn't do it. And others, like Peter, flip-flopped on the issue and was happy to eat with Gentiles until the pressure from the Jewish contingent became too great and then he withdrew and was rebuked openly by Paul because of it. Because for Paul, there's a lot at stake. It's not just about a meal. This is not just about sitting side by side. What's at stake is the gospel. Paul really believed that, I think. He believed that what's at stake in that meal of of Jew and Gentile coming together is, is the gospel itself, the cross itself, the very reason and purpose for which Christ died. And if it only reconciles us to one another and yet leaves us entrenched in division and hostility towards our brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. It's not the true gospel. And that, I think, is why Paul pushed for this. He could have backed away, but he pushed for it. He pushed for it. He made enemies on both sides at times, Jews and Gentiles. Someone, sometimes he, he was the friend of nobody because of this. But he kept pushing and kept pushing because he believed there was something at stake here. And he had a vision of what the church was and what the church could be. And it's a vision I believe we need to keep working for today. It's no less important in our day as it was in Paul's day. We are still the new humanity. We are still one in Christ Jesus. We are still a signpost to a broken and fractured world of what human relationships are supposed to look like. And we need to swim upstream from all the social dislocation and fracturing that characterizes the world out there and model something different. And demonstrate something different from others outside the church and toward others outside the church. It's a big vision, I know, but you see it sometimes. You catch, you catch glimpses of it. I don't know whether you've, you've seen it, you've glimpsed it at times. I remember uh, when a group of us went to Israel several years ago in 2014. And we went to a church service there, attended a church service just outside of Nazareth, a Baptist church there. And it was a Palestinian Christian church full of mainly Palestinian Christians. And uh, it was an amazing experience to worship with this congregation and to sing songs that many of us knew and were familiar with. But now we're singing them in Arabic and uh, to sense that common ground that was there. And I had the privilege of leading into communion and just praying into that reality that we are one in Christ Jesus. Uh, from different corners of the globe, different cultures, different stories, but we are one. Here we are, worshipping the same God, even in different languages. And that church, from time to time, meets with other churches around the, the local area where they gather from all sorts of different, different backgrounds, different denominations, not just Baptists. They get together with other churches. And I understand that one of the churches that they meet with is a Messianic Jewish church. Now, if you understand the division between Messianic Jews, Messianic Israelis, and Palestinian Christians, even though they are both Christians, that division is huge. The way they see the world, the way that even they see the scriptures and the worldview, very, very different. And it is not easy for them to come together. But I understand this happens, that from time to time, you've got a congregation here. And just think, this is, this is exactly what Paul intended, isn't it? I mean, literally Jew and Gentile here coming together 
and worshipping the one true God, singing in both Hebrew and Arabic. I can't think of a better demonstration on the planet today of the new humanity than that. Palestinian Christians, Messianic Jews, one in Jesus Christ. It's messy and it's ugly and I'm sure it's not comfortable at times. But it's the gospel. And it's the hard work that we've got to be willing to do if we follow this Jesus. You glimpse it from time to time. You see it in different, different places and cultures and stages of history. I think in a, di- in a very different kind of way, Martin Luther King saw this in the deep racial divides of 1960s US in his famous I Have a Dream speech. You've probably all heard it. And he says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. He saw it. He was a broken and flawed man, we know that. But he saw it and he worked for it. You see it. You saw it in a, in a totally different context and much closer to home. A few weeks ago, there was a prayer gathering in Mangadi at an Anglican church there facilitated by the Reverend Lyndon Drake and brought people together. Laidlaw College promoted this. And it was simply to come together and pray around the situation at Ihimatel. It wasn't to try and propose solutions. It wasn't to politicize. It wasn't to take sides. It was simply to come together, Māori and Pākehā, coming together to pray for the tensions that have surfaced, the grievances and the struggles, and to pray that the gospel would make a difference. Because ultimately, it is the gospel that can make a difference. Wherever people come together in the name of Christ, across all those lines that typically divide us and keep us apart, there is the new humanity taking shape. So we need to bring this right down to our own level and think about, well, what does this mean here? And what, what does this mean at Shore? And what does this mean for my life? I mean, we're not often involved in these big, big-scale uh, issues, hostilities, divisions, and so on, but it still matters and it still means something for us. I think even in churches, it's very easy. You can have a church that is very diverse. And yet within that, people can often just drift apart, drift into silos, drift into their own kind of circles, into their own kind of homogenous groupings. And this just, nobody intends it. Nobody, no, we're not trying to be malicious. It's just the drift. It's just that gradual, subconscious fragmenting of our relationships. We drift into cultural groups. We drift often into generational groups, don't we? And then we can be a little bit suspicious, you know, older people being a little bit suspicious of those young people and what they're up to. Younger people being a bit suspicious of those older people and what they're up to. And we sort of just keep the other at a bit of arm's length. And we're not too sure about them. Even the way we talk, it's them, isn't it? And us, and I think I'll just stick with us and I'm not sure about them. And we do that. We can drift into our own um, theological groups, people that agree with us in these matters of fine doctrine. And, you know, we're not sure about those Calvinists or those Arminians or those dispensationalists or those Pentecostals or those Presbyterians or whoever those people are, fill in the blank. It's them and it's us. And we can do this all the time. We're still following Jesus and we still sit next to them possibly or across the room from them on Sunday. But most of the time we just drift apart. And I think we need to consider what the gospel says to these divisions that can take place. I, think, I actually think it's sure we're taking real steps 
I think we are a really unified bunch. And I see us coming together across all kinds of barriers and divisions and seeking to build that unity. I think we just need to keep asking, what does this mean for us? How do we keep taking steps? How do we keep... Maybe it means genuinely taking an interest and moving towards and befriending someone of a different culture to you within this congregation. Maybe it's as simple as that. Someone of a different culture to you. Maybe it's coming alongside someone of a different generation to you within the church. How about that? Maybe it's being willing to be in a life group with someone who doesn't think exactly the same as you on every little issue and being willing and not being there with an axe to grind, not being there to drive your agenda or win an argument, but being there to love and to learn and listen. Let me read you a quote about what the new humanity can look like. It's by Rob Bell, and I know in recent years he's written some strange things, but I think back in the early days he wrote some things that are really worth listening to, and I think this is one of them. He says, in the new humanity, you hear perspectives you wouldn't normally hear. You walk in someone else's shoes, you find out that the judgments you had previously made about that kind of people, that group of people, or that kind of men, or those kind of women, or all of those kids, simply don't hold up because now you're getting to know one of those and it's changing everything. You learn that your labels for different people are insufficient because people are far more complex and unpredictable and intelligent and creative. You used to have a rigid stance on a particular issue, but now you've heard the other side and it's impossible anymore to characterize them all as stupid and uninformed and heartless because you realize they've thought about their position and they've weighed the consequences and they have some good points that you must consider. In the new humanity, our world gets bigger, our perspective goes from black and white to color, our sensitivities are heightened, we're rescued from sameness and uniformity because the wall has come down and peace has been made. A church is the new humanity on display. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying. It's very easy uh, when we don't know people in flesh and blood to characterize, caricature, to stereotype, and then set up straw man arguments and shoot them down. But when you get to know someone in flesh and blood and you've got them in front of you over coffee and you hear their story and you hear their heart, those labels often disappear and those stereotypes don't work. And you realize that's a person made in the image of God. This is a person for whom Christ died. This is a person with whom I can have fellowship, connectedness as a brother or a sister in Christ. Amen. It's the challenge for us, I think. Are we willing to be one, truly one? Are we willing to be a church that welcomes and embraces and loves every person, regardless of where they sit on the political spectrum, regardless of which mayor they're going to vote for, regardless of their particular views on particular issues, regardless even of their sexual orientation? And I don't mean embracing all lifestyles and affirming all lifestyles. I mean welcoming and loving all people. This is what the gospel calls us to do. These are the hard questions we need to wrestle with. But the picture, the vision, I think, is what Paul describes as he wraps up this passage. He gives us a picture of what the future could be in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Look how far the Gentiles have come from the picture that he painted back in verse 12 of these aliens, foreigners, cut off, strangers, excluded, no hope without God. And now where are they? No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, members of God's household, members of God's family. In fact, Paul will go on in the next couple of verses to say, you're even members of the temple. 
You're part of the spiritual house now, Jew and Gentile together. That was a big statement. It was a bold statement. It was a statement, statement that got him into trouble many times. But that's the church. That's the church we need to work for and strive for. And that's how we should seek to demonstrate the love of Christ outside the boundaries of the church. Working for peace and reconciliation and shalom wherever we can. I think one of the most beautiful pictures I see of the new humanity is each Sunday when we get up and take communion. And we'll do it in just a minute. And I quite like the fact in the gym that we have to get out of our seats and we have to go to a table and do something that physically engages us in this. And what you see, I don't know that there's too many other gatherings around today where such a diverse bunch of people would come together around a common cause and belief. But here we are, and what we're saying by going to these tables is that we are all equally broken in the first instance, right? We're saying we're all equally sinners, We don't take communion because we're good Christians. We take communion because we're hopeless Christians and we need God's grace every second of the day. And as we take these elements, we are equal recipients of God's grace and we equally receive and we are equally nourished by his grace and we equally drink in his mercy. And even though we have 200 little cups and 200 little wafers over there, really there is one cup, really there is one loaf, And that represents in Christ that there is one church, one new humanity, and we are one in Christ Jesus. And so this time of communion, it shouldn't just put you into a little bubble with just you and God. It should arguably be the time when you are most mindful of who is around you. Because this meal binds you not only to God, but to one another. It makes us the new humanity. And it should characterize who we are as we walk out of these doors. So in a moment, we're going to take communion, and I want to invite you to do something slightly different this morning. We'll, we'll get up as we do and take the elements, but I want you to bring them back to your seats and then just refrain from taking them for just a minute. Just hold on to them, have them in front of you, and just consider the grace of God. But then I'll come back up and lead us in a moment of taking these elements together. We'll take the cup, we'll take the wafer together to symbolize our unity in Christ Jesus. Because we're recognizing we are the new humanity, we are a signpost here of what relationships are supposed to be. May we increasingly be this new humanity in our common life together as a church, and may we be the new humanity as we walk out these doors to a world that desperately needs to see it, a broken and a fractured world. May we demonstrate the shalom, the peace of Christ. Let's pray together as we prepare ourselves for the table. Jesus, we thank you for this work that you have accomplished on the cross, that in your body, Jesus, in your, in your flesh, you have reconciled us. You've reconciled us to the Father. And then your word says, in your body, you have reconciled us to one another. You've reconciled Jew and Gentile in your body on the cross so that there is no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew, Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray this wouldn't just be an idea for us. This wouldn't just be a nice picture to think about. But Lord, I pray even now you would bring to our hearts and our minds, to our consciousness, the steps that you would have us take to live out this oneness, live out this new humanity, live out this shalom together and before a watching world. 
Lord, would you just surface in our hearts any ways in which we are tending to have a derogatory attitude towards any other person, towards any other group, towards any other culture, even just in the smallest and most casual of ways. Lord Jesus, would you raise it to our minds now? And Lord, we want to repent of that. Lord, we want to come humbly and repent and confess that and ask for your forgiveness. We pray, Jesus, that you would teach us to see people as you see them, as brothers, as sisters, as human beings, alive in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, give us a new vision for who all people are made in your image. Give us a new vision for the church. Give us a new vision for our calling and our mission in the world to extend your grace, extend your love, extend your shalom wherever we can. Show us the next steps. Help us to work this out in our lives and in our church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.